Okay. Um, I wanted to also set out for you um, a little bit of an overview of the scope of what I hope we'll be able to discuss here today. After September 11th, 2001, President Bush announced that the country was at war with a new kind of enemy that required new kinds of legal treatment. He defined terrorists and their supporters as neither ordinary criminals nor as prisoners of war, but as illegal enemy combatants who are outside of the reach of U.S. courts and the Geneva Conventions. Gathering intelligence from these suspects was seen as an urgent national priority in order to prevent additional attacks. Some of the methods that were used to um, try to get this intelligence that I hope we can touch on today were coercive interrogations, indefinite detentions, military commissions that can use new kinds of evidence, including coerced confessions, targeted assassinations, extraordinary renditions to, of suspects to other countries where some of them have claimed that they were tortured, heightened government security, domestic surveillance without FISA court approval, and retroactive immunity, which was passed recently for war, war, any war crimes that might have been committed by American government officials in uh, this policy between 1997 and 2005. So I am hoping that we can weigh some of the pros and cons of these, um, these new programs and um, decide whether they are necessary, whether they're working, and whether they're right for America, and whether they will be the same kinds of programs that we'll want to continue on into the next five years in this war on terror. Um, so finally, I want to get to a question that I can put to each of you. Um, if you could just answer in turn, and, um, and then um, I hope you guys can feel free to respond to each other. And the question is that during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln unilaterally suspended habeas corpus rights for suspected Confederate sympathizers. He rounded them up and detained them without due process. History has largely forgiven Lincoln, I think it's fair to say. Um, are we in a time of equal or greater peril than we were in the Civil War? Are we facing an enemy of equal uh, you know, threat to the country? Must we also suspend some of our most cherished liberties and rights in order to win this war? Um, and do we need to do this in order to save lives? And if so, will history also forgive us for doing this? Starting with Brad Berenson. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jane. Um, I think that it's important to remember a couple of things historically about the balance between liberty and security. Uh, Lincoln's conduct during the Civil War was not the exception. It was very much the norm. If you go all the way back to the Revolution, um, Tory sympathizers were essentially chased out of the country up to Canada at the time that we were fighting that war. Uh, abridgments of civil liberties uh, in World War II uh, were far greater than anything we've seen in the current war. The most obvious instance, of course, for which history has not really uh, forgiven our leaders at the time was the internment of the, of the Japanese. But there were many other instances. There was uh, comprehensive censorship, for example, of, uh, of a lot of what was appearing um, in the media. So it is, Lincoln is not the only example of a president who has uh, assumed extraordinary power during time of war to try to preserve the country against a very serious threat. And in thinking about what this administration has done since 9-11, I think it's very important to understand that this balance between liberty and security is never going to be gotten exactly right in the moment. 
You're going to make mistakes. And the question that we really have to confront as a country is what kind of mistakes, what category of mistakes are we most prepared to accept? And as it relates to executive power, there's really two possibilities. One is that we give our president too much freedom of action, too much power, allow him to overreach, uh, to do things that we will later regard as uh, beyond the legitimate scope of his authority and will therefore regret. Uh, the other possibility is that we will make mistakes in the other direction and we will disempower him, disable him from doing things that he may need to do to protect the country. Historically, we as a nation have always found the decision between those two types of mistakes a very, very easy one. And we have opted for the former for the simple reason that in general, we have far less to fear from our own president, no matter who it is, no matter what party uh, it come, uh, the president comes from, than we do from our external foes. And more importantly, the first type of error can be corrected after the war. And our system does an unbelievably good job of that. The Chief Justice, uh, the former Chief Justice, William Rehnquist, wrote a book called All the Laws But One, where he catalogs and describes the history of civil liberties during wartime. And what he concludes is that civil liberties are always curtailed to some extent when you're fighting a war, uh, and that they spring back when the immediate emergency or threat has passed. And not only do they spring back in the form they existed prior to the war, but in part as a reaction to the perceived mistakes or abuses or excesses, they often spring back in a form more robust than they existed prior to the war. So the first kind of mistake can be corrected. If you hobble the president in time of war, restrict his freedom of action, uh, and therefore empower your enemies more than they ought to be, uh, the, the kinds of mistakes that that can cause um, often can't be corrected. Mistakes uh, of the kind we saw dramatically illustrated just a few miles from here at ground zero, uh, or more catastrophically, uh, loss of the war. And, and that takes me to the really the first part of your question, which is, is the danger today the same or greater than what we faced during the Civil War? I'll try to be uh, brief, but I think this is the fundamental question in a way. I mean, how you assess what the Bush administration has done, I think, depends very greatly uh, on how serious a threat you believe we really do face and whether you accept, based on that assessment, uh, a wartime framework for meeting it uh, rather than a more traditional law enforcement model. I certainly do think the threat today is every bit as grave as any that we faced during the Cold War, during World War II, during the Civil War. Uh, maybe not the revolution, because the nation uh, wouldn't have existed to begin with had we lost that one. But the only reason I say this is weapons of mass destruction, and in particular nuclear weapons. Uh, Graham Allison, a political science professor up at Harvard, has a book called Nuclear Terrorism that I commend to all of you. Um, in which he believes that the odds that a major Western city is destroyed by a nuclear weapon in the next 10 years, and I think maybe there's eight remaining on his clock since the book's a couple of years old, is greater than 50%. And he says he's willing to wager money on that. Uh, and that is not just an enormous catastrophe in terms of the, the loss of life and the economic disruption. Uh, I, I honestly believe that if that happens, um, Western civilization itself will be in grave peril. And that act would really be uh, analogous to the sacking of Rome by the barbarian uh, tribes in the 4th and 5th fourth and fifth centuries, which led to a thousand-year-long dark age. And so if, if I'm right that the stakes are that high, 
that really the entire future of our civilization is at stake, even though the decline might be slow and inexorable uh, after a nuclear attack, um, then I think the answer to your initial question has to be absolutely yes. Thank you. Deborah? Hard to know uh, where to start after that, but <laughs> l let, me, let me give it a go. So I think there are at least two, f at least two fundamental um, what a professor of mine would have called category errors in um, the way that, that Mr. Berenson is um, thinking about the answer to this good and enormous question. Error number one is one of law. The United States was founded at a time and the Constitution was written at a time when we had never been um, more threatened or less secure as a nation. It was forged in war. It was written by military veterans, largely, although not entirely. Um, and it was designed for the purpose of creating a form of government that would exist structurally, constitutionally, um, no matter what, essentially, the threat that was facing the brand new, at the time, United States. So this idea that um, all of a sudden there's a new kind of security threat, and I'll come back to in a minute the, the policy question of how profound this is, that there's a new kind of security threat that the Constitution never could have conceivably contemplated or even set aside the threat of terrorism, that in wartime the Constitution is somehow less applicable or law is less applicable, I think is directly contrary certainly factually and as a matter of law to the whole idea of the government of the United States. Now, the fact